boom, the vehicle hit an IED that we'd missed. The last anyone ever saw me was engulfed in a flame fireball. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill me, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down the Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Right? Yeah, going to I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the trouble like the like She did say, you've changed. The soldier put everything on the line to help one of our boys. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you're listening to Life on the Line in collaboration with StoryWrite, dedicated to empowering veterans one story at a time. In today's podcast, we meet Nathan Bolton, a former Special Forces combat engineer who has a story of service, sacrifice, and personal transformation. Today, he's a filmmaker and public speaker determined to challenge our understanding of post-traumatic stress and the consequences of war. Nathan, thanks for joining us on Life on the Line. It is a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So first up to set the scene, just describe your childhood for us. Uh, I had a uh, rather semi-normal sort of childhood. However, I was also brought up into a um, family rich in success. Put it this way, so my grandfather, he was a rather prestigious man, a visionary of his time. He performed uh, great and noble deeds um, within the community. He single-handedly raised the morale of multiple South Australian battalions serving in World War II over in the Middle East. We actually pulled together all the families of all the loved ones of all the soldiers and sent over footage over to the Middle East just before the Battle of El Alamein. Mayor of Burnside building uh, the Burnside swimming pool, youth facilities such as uh, the Burnside ballroom, the Kensington Olympic sports field. Just to clarify, Burnside being a major suburb here in Adelaide, lots of people here would have heard of it. And I suppose just to give that context, that clearly he was a, a very important man in his local community. Well, we were brought up with a um, portrait of him overlooking our dining room. So no matter where we went, we always saw this man. And my brothers and I never got the chance to meet him. And so with that, we only ever learn about his deeds through that of our father sharing with us his stories. And with that, we learn a lot about what it truly meant to be a man. We actually brought up with an idealistic notion of what it is that we must achieve in order to see success. By the age of 21, after graduating year 12, I had got a certificate three in geoscience. I'd worked in the mines, worked in the oil rigs. I was a volunteer with the country fire service. I had joined the army and risen to be a part of the Australian Special Forces. Like I was young, but I was relentless in my pursuit for ambition. And I guess I was trying to fulfill a legacy forged by that of my grandfather. Sounds like a lot of pressure. That is an understatement. Pretty much growing up, never been able to be satisfied with what it is that you do, what it is that you achieve, and you always aspire to become a high achiever, always chasing, believing that you should be better. But at the same time, a very rewarding pressure because it pushes you to go well beyond to what you deem to be your limits. And so for that, I'm very fortunate. 
But what does that do to a young person being exposed to that level of pressure that you've just described there so eloquently? I joined the military. By the time I finished Kapuka or my basic training and my initial employment training, which is like learning how to be a combat engineer, by the time I got to Darwin in my regiment at the first combat engineer regiment, within about two months, I realized that most people here did not set out to achieve much more than bare minimum. And with that, I was, I could not cope with could not deal with. And so within four months of joining the army, I put my hand up to join the special forces. At first I was laughed at, pretty much kicked me out of the room. My sergeant was like, no, no you're too green. You're too young, mate. Like, yeah, you ain't going. And he goes, come back in six weeks. If you come back in six weeks and still want to go, then I'll consider it. Oh, I was there six weeks to the day. I rocked up there and he was like, are you serious? And then because I did really well in my, at Kapuka, I got the Skill at Arms Award, like best shot. And then at Combat Engineering School, I was awarded the Soldier of Merit. They pretty much allowed my application to go through. And I, within nine months, I was now down back in Holsworthy in Sydney as a part of the Special Operations Engineers Regiment, which is formerly known as the Incident Response Regiment. Yeah, so I found myself a part of Australian Special Forces. So tell us a bit more about the soldier of merit factor. I mean, what did it mean back then to be a good soldier? And how did you reflect those characteristics with your own behaviour and conduct? I was in complete denial. <laughs> was the, uh, my instructors I got along really well with, they were like, oh, Bolts, are your parents coming up to your march out? I was like, hell no. That's an ill. <laughs> you, you ain't coming. I was like, they're not flying all the way up from Adelaide to go watch me do some crappy little march out parade. I was like, what an embarrassment. Especially we watched one just like two weeks previous and I was like, no, this is not going to happen. And then they kept asking me the same question. And um, I was just like, what's going on? And they're like, Bolts, just bring your bloody parents up. You won the soldier of merit. To me, it didn't feel like anything. Oh, well, I guess my parents would be proud. But it's not like you really take it on board or anything like that. It's more just a reassurance that you're on the right track. I didn't really, it never really fulfilled any sense of greatness or anything like that. It was just purely, just meant I was doing something right. And to myself, I was like, well, sweet, that'll do. Yeah, it didn't really mean much. What kind of a person were you at that time as a soldier? Do you remember much about your behaviour, the kind of bloke you were? I was a bit of a easygoing, fun to be around. I always stood up as a bit of a leader. I guess I was very humble in the ways in which I did it. Never know that I was doing it. But like when it came to decision making, I was very, if you had split decisions between two groups of people wanting to do something, I'd always be the one that made the call in the middle and like trying to find the vote, rally the votes up, rally the guys up, which one we were doing, which one, what, what do we do first? That was always sort of the kind of guy I was. You mentioned your parents. So were they proud? The moment I told my parents that I won that award, they could not fathom. <laughs> they, within a heartbeat, they left. My march out parade was in like 24 hours pretty much packed up the car, drove straight over to Sydney from Adelaide, which is a good 14-hour drive for those who don't know. Bit of a long haul. My father is very, has a lot of respect for servicemen. Growing up, always went to like Anzac Day doing services with him. And he pretty much taught me the fundamental pay respect and your, your honour, commemorate the sacrifice of those who've served. I was brought up with a profound respect for military and serving, which I guess sort of motivated my drive to get in to fulfill a father's 
Because my dad's a bit of an emotional icebox. He's not very good with communicating feelings. And I saw the amount of respect that he showed these servicemen at like doing services. And I was like, well, if he's not going to tell me, but I can see it right now if I like join the military, well, that's a surefire way to make a father proud. And that probably has a lot of driving ambition in behind what got me into the military in the first place, plus my own sort of chase for adventure. Growing up, I loved sort of army and like doing like jumping off our balcony and trying to abseil off weird stuff. And I was working the mines at the time, the oil rigs. I was on huge money, huge coin, especially at such a young age, I could afford and buy anything that I want. But I left all of that for $3 an hour to go and join the army because I was like, hey, I wanted the stories. I want the adventure. I want to live. I want to be able to come home and have something to say to people because, hey, isn't that what life's all about? Stories. This is what I wanted. So when your parents came to your marching out parade, did you have a sense that you had achieved what you set out to achieve? Did you have their approval? To them, they would have been, they were proud. I have no doubt they were proud. But to me, oh, I was only just beginning. That was only the start of like an unrelenting ambition and drive to keep pushing forward because from there so once i got to the special operations engineers regiment our first year was dedicated to supporting tag east for those who don't know it's a tactical assault group on the east coast pretty much the military domestic counterterrorism version of like let's say swat where you're protecting australia's interests did that for about a year then went straight on to pre-deployment that's six months of training and training and training because our job my job as an engineer overseas we're there to find the bombs that is our primary job. We search and clearance of improvised explosive devices and cached weapons. So my job is to find the, the hidden threat that no one can see and protect all the lives of the team around you. Their lives are in your hands from a threat that you can't see. Trained and trained and trained right up until, yeah, oh geez, I still remember the rear tail gate of our plane opening up and stepping out to that dirt runway. 50 degree heat just shimmering out before you and the huge mountains lining the landscape vast greenery all amidst the desert and i remember just standing there as your gaze sort of like finally lowers i just remember looking down and you just see this you just suddenly see nothing nothing except for a big two-story hessian sand wall designed to take the impact of like rocket propelled grenades and machine gun fire and reality hits you like i'm at war and how old were you by now i was 22. 22 years old and you went to Afghanistan. I was a young pup. But at that time, you don't think much of it. You'd been training. This is your job. Like anyone, it's like people who smoke. Like you just, you know the, the dangers of it are very real, but you're like, it's not going to happen to me. Which is a good thing because it keeps you, it keeps that fear buried in the back of your mind and allows you to perform as a very, as a soldier that's actually it an asset to the team and not a liability because if you're constantly thinking about the dangers of the job that you're doing you become quite a big threat to your own team was it literally that every day you went out did your job and you didn't think about the risks to your own safety and that of the your mates around you you become so integrated with your mates in your team like the whole notion of band of brothers like it's quite an interesting but it's concept, it's very cliche in how it sounds, but you do become so integrated with one another that I would personally put the life of my mate ahead of my own. Because right now, if I, under my own watch, under my own doing, I cost the life of a mate, that would be something far more challenging to deal with than losing my own life. 
you put besides the dangers to yourself and go do everything you can to protect everyone around you. And at the same time, by doing that, by default, you're protecting yourself, but you're, you're looking out beyond yourself to something far greater, a bigger picture. Yeah, my first tour was all about vehicle operations. So it was one of the first tours where we actually got out the vehicles and we started driving around anywhere. But where most tours you'd normally find like maybe a handful of IEDs or these hidden bombs buried in the ground. Um, my first tour was far from ordinary. My team alone, I think, found like 23 IEDs, 23 of these hidden bombs buried in the ground. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. They were like coming at us like clockwork. We are driving along. And I remember team commander, the vehicle stopped and it was like, you hear the call over the intercom, like over your, your little ears that you're wearing in the vehicle. And it's like, search is up. And me and a mate, we're about to jump out. Of the, we're like, oh, well, that's us. We're to jump out the vehicle of our mind labs because what that means is that he stopped the vehicle because in front of him, where we're about to drive through, is like a vulnerable point. You're like, oh, man, I think there's something dodgy about that thing. We better just get some searches out there, check if there's any bombs or anything like that and make sure it's all good to go. And we're like, yep, sweet, about to open the door. And then you get this call up saying, nah, don't worry about it. Such an uncanny call, but he's never done it before. So we, we looked at each other, we're like, right, we just sat back down, no dramas. And we started driving and boom, our whole car explodes. <laughs> oh, it's just chaos, everything's went black, it's like just dust. You just can't see me. Cans of soft drink and potato chips exploded, like I was just covered in coke. Chaos in that moment, because you're like, you have no idea what's going on, everything's just ringing and you're just like, wow. Uh, and I still remember, and then the dust sort of finally settled and you can see and you hear the screaming of the commander going, is everyone okay, is everyone okay? And, and then suddenly I remember seeing my mate who was sitting on the back, who was on the back gun of the vehicle, and he was sitting directly above the back left tyre where the, what hit the bomb. So that's like 20 kilos of explosive. It's not small. And I remember him just dropping through the, the hatch, just his eyes just gasping for air, eyes wider than I don't know, the black of night, just to stare, just like deep into nothingness. Like we're on the verge of sleep and then yeah, the next we're on the edge of death. Yeah, it was uh, quite, a, uh, quite an experience. That's an understatement, quite an experience. That's the thing. It's just like you breeze through it. You allow it to be so because you just justify saying this is war. This is it. What more is there to say? And I go, we all got out of it alive. A couple of my mates got injured, only minor injuries, but enough to get them evac home or back to the base just so they can uh, recover. But overall, yeah, you just like, yeah, so be it. As old, who said it, Tony Abbott or whatever said it, shit happens. <laughs> That's all it is, yeah. A much criticised yeah. quote 100%. in retrospect. Yeah, yeah. Tell me a bit more about your mate then. He got out of that okay? Yeah, no, they were both both fine. A bit of shock. And the other one, the explosion actually buckled the floor of our vehicle and the entire shockwave went through the floor and like bruises like heel bone and stuff like that. So yeah, he just wasn't able to walk. So for the rest of that mission, obviously having an engineer not being able to walk and actually do his job, no, you can't have it. But yeah, and then the stories just continue because then I was like, we're walking along. Uh, so we got to this VDO, a vehicle drop-off. So we all parked up all the vehicles. We're in Bushmasters. So they're the big like armoured vehicles that you see a lot of us Aussies in. And we parked up on this thing. And then on the way in, we ended up like hitting this big rock. You didn't think much of it. We got off the rock, but it seriously buckled one of the bins on the side of our vehicle. 
And so when we pulled up, I went to get the food out and it happened to be the exact same bin that all our food was in. And I hadn't eaten like eight hours. I was starving and I was like, and I'm using Jimmy bars and crowbars, anything I possibly can get to try to get into that bin and just could not get in. And I was like, bugger this, grabbed one of the other drivers, got his vehicle around and actually got a, a snatch strap onto the bin and got the other driver in the vehicle actually wrench it open with his car. And all sort of worked, all went sweet, bin got flung open, all the food came falling out and I was like happy for days, I was about to get fed. Unhooked the snatch strap from the other vehicle and as it drove off, I was probably 10 metres away from it, boom, the vehicle hit an IED that we'd missed in our search for the video in that vehicle drop-off parking area. And I just, I was that close to it, I actually vanished. The last anyone ever saw me was engulfed in a flying fireball. Everything just went black. I could still see the, see the blast as it erupted. And it's just, it's just like a fleeting memory. And I remember just hearing these screams. Like I just, I don't really recall what happened. All I remember doing is grabbing someone and running around to the front of the vehicle, but I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know if I'd been injured, if I was fragged or in what sort of state I was. And then, do you know, from the movies sort or of stuff, you hear, Woo! like I couldn't, I couldn't hear that. Like, my ears were like ringing. I had, I was, I like, perforated my ears. I was like bleeding from my ears and stuff like that. And then suddenly over the, over the ring, all of a sudden I hear this muffled, shrill scream. Looking around, all the dust was still there, and then I heard again. I hear this, Bolton. It was my two I see seco just screaming because the last they ever saw me was just engulfed. Yeah, apparently my section commander went sprinting across the video. But where there's one bomb, there's usually another. So pretty much when something like that happens, you just stop still. And apparently he just went sprinting. And one of my mates had to actually call him up, say, "Leave it, like leave it, like don't go." It's too dangerous. I emerged out of the dust and the carnage and fortunately hit the back left tire and not the back right tire of the vehicle. I was standing on the right-hand side of the vehicle, so because I hit the back left, the vehicle actually shielded me from all the frag. I just copped a massive blast wave. But if it hit the back right tire, the same side that I was standing on, then probably wouldn't still be here today. Were you injured? Nah, just I was bleeding from the ears and stuff like that. Probably had some blast overpressure injuries, but nothing worthy of going and getting checked. <laughs> I don't know, once again, you do what you normally do. And as a man, what do you do best? You bury that sort of stuff as deep and as distant as you could and uh, you move on going, this is such is. So are you saying that <laughs> after that experience that you didn't even get checked? You weren't even sent for some kind of medical care? No, I told him I was all good. I was like, just check my ears because my ears are hurting and she'll be right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And that's, yeah, I guess that's why uh, young individuals are very good because we have that sort of, uh, young males are good because we have that little bit of an invincibility sort of complex when we're at that sort of age. And so we actually, uh, I guess we serve and do our role a lot better than when you're a bit older. You have a far more stable and understanding of life itself. And yeah. But with the benefit of hindsight, looking back now, I mean, you're clearly surprised by the reaction you had at the time. Or not? Like I ended up finding three of those bombs laying the ground. One of them I was, it was like an upside down Coke bottle with about a three mil gap between for the switch. Like there was a nail and a little piece of brass copper underneath it with about a two or three mil gap between it. But because I hit the actual pressure plate side on and not top down, it didn't detonate. I've counted my lucky stars numerous times, but after that, yeah, I was, uh, 
I'm still here, still here to tell the tale. And uh, that's just part of experiences that have created the man that you see today. So you were lying on top of a pressure plate on an IED. What was going through your mind? Oh, the moment you realise that that is the case, you sort of, <laughs> you just sort of go blank. Regather your thoughts because everything in training, there's one word that you hate in the military. It's the word notional. I hated the word notional. Everything was notional, especially in engineering. Everything's make-believe. You're looking for bombs but like in training, but they're never going to detonate. There's no explosive in it. They're not going to try to kill you. And so everything's always notional. But then out there for the first time, it is as real as it gets. And that little slip-up, that's the difference between either living and or, as the old expression goes, pink mist. Unaffectionate way of saying what happens if you... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if the, the, the latter occurs. So thinking back on that particular experience, what do you think you took away from that? You learn a lot about yourself. You appreciate your ability to cope under pressure, that you didn't freak out. And now I can always say that I can hold my own when the time gets tough. And I guess looking back, I always joined the military for those experiences, for the adventure. I wanted the stories. And suddenly, yeah, here I am, lived to tell the tale with some stories to call my own. Because I know there's many veterans out there who forever wish they got to, some may have trained all their life and never got to serve. And because the biggest notion is when you speak to someone and they say they're a veteran, first preconceived notion is that they have served on deployment overseas. And I know guys who have yet to do that. It can sometimes be a bit of a struggle. You never get to prove yourself in that sort of such. So, Because this was just your first deployment, wasn't it? I mean, there was even more that came after what you've already told us. Oh, yeah, that was only just the beginning. So, yeah, I got home after my first deployment. All went sweet. I had a bit of a, a rough patch for about a week trying to transition back into day-to-day -day life, but I managed to get through that. But oh, like in the end, I was like, I had done so much and like, I've had a great first deployment, but it wasn't enough. And what I expected of myself, I was like, this is, I still want more. Like I'm not satisfied with what I've achieved and what I've accomplished so far. And so with that, I was like, well, what better way than to try out for the elite of the elite of the special forces and so i went on uh, sas or the special air service selection course and for those who don't know picture like a uh, 21 days of sheer mental and physical hell where you're like tested well beyond to what you deem to be your limits first 10 days like three hour pt sessions your mental stamina under extreme fatigue lack of sleep it's just brutal in the next five days, you're given a compass, a grid reference, a map of where you are and where you need to go. And off you go like 60 kilos on your back looking for like a camouflaged army vehicle in the scrub some 25 kilometers away. I managed to cover like 100 k's in those few days. But it's dangerous because it's the only time in the course where you have no one around you. And you have to keep going under your own willpower, your own audacity to keep moving forward. Because a lot of people quit because you, have no, you don't have that support barrier, that someone to lean on. So people actually quit that part. For me, I found it very comforting because I had no instructors screaming at me, calling me a cream puff. Yeah, <laughs> oh, they were relentless. And call it. <laughs> that was the problem. I'm six foot five and like 110 kilos. Like I stand out like a sore tooth. And that was one of the primary comments that the instructor said. He goes, recruit 35, I would hate to be you because yeah, 
no matter where I look, I always see you. And in that sort of course, you want to be a gray man. You'd rather be somewhere amongst the pack, but never seen, because then you can never do anything wrong if they can't see you. But I stand out and, and I'm falling behind or being a bit of a, I wasn't the fittest or the fastest, but I was like a well-oiled tractor, like a whole massive Ferguson, just uh, keep on going, just trucking along to the finish, a little engine that could. And so I kept pushing, finished the course out of the 120, 120 people that started, I think it was, only 28 of us stood there at the very end. Man, I was a zombie. You look around, everyone's faces are like sucked into their cheekbones. There's like not an ounce of fat left on anyone's faces. I lost 15 kilos in 21 days. And I was, yeah, I was pretty shredded. Like I was gearing up for stereos or some sort of sweet music festival or something like that. Yeah, I was, um, I was ready to go. But yeah, I was severely malnourished and catabolic. You stand tall, proud at the end. I was like, yeah, because you're like, man, you're like, I've so few of you left. I've made it. I've done it. And you stand tall, proud that you've just completed one of the toughest courses in the world. And moments later, our personal evaluations began. So like your final debrief, like no dramas. And the opening words that he said to me were, the panel do not find you suitable to continue into the next phase. Give it your all. I always strove to be the very best, uh, the best soldier I could. You give it your all, but this moment ripped very like foundations out of me and what I called a man. I was, yeah, I always strove to be the best and suddenly within an instant found out that I was not the man that I once believed I was. So what made you continue? So I'd finished the course. This was pretty much where they can say, they say yes, yay or nay. Um, you have to finish the course in order to be accepted and I finished the course but then got turned down at the end. In that moment I failed myself as a man. I guess I had an expectation of myself, especially growing up with uh, a father, grandfather and all that and all the legacy and the achievement and the accomplishment and suddenly, yeah. And this was my this was my time to make my name and my legacy and then suddenly someone telling me that, nah, you're not you're not that good mate. Like, yeah, no, we don't want you. But somehow you picked yourself up and then you had another deployment. So how did that come about? So I didn't get accepted there, came home, didn't really matter. Because as soon as I came home, I went straight on pre-deployment training. I was like, man, if anything was going to redeem my sense of pride and my masculinity, hey, war would be its maker. And so uh, back to Afghan, I went on my second tour on rotation 17 now. So on both rotations, I supported the commandos. Oh, wow, there, this tour, uh, very different to my first, far rougher tour. In the space of six months, I think we, well, we had numerous engagements with the enemy. I think we had over, killed over 200 enemy combatants. I've seen a lot of dislodged brains and I've seen a lot of blood, both that of my mates and of the enemy. Been in yeah, numerous gunfights, gunfights where I have absolutely no idea how I'm still here, where I found myself hiding behind a rock no bigger than your mum's watering can. I just chucked my head behind it and you got bullets ricocheting off the front of it, laying on the side of a hill going, oh my gosh, just me and two others, like how do we get out of here? And then we like propped up against trees no wider than like a bamboo shoot <laughs> with some dude in a machine gun just like going at you and you're like, I don't know how each bullet's missing us right now, but I guess it, the dude's just a really shit shot thank goodness for that but in the end like with all that said and done nothing really compares to the night i found myself having to 
clear this uh, old Russian fighting pit. We'd just done it on a seven-kilometer infill, so our chopper landed about seven kilometers out, walked into this village. I was going with the snipers to an overwatch position where you look over the town, and I was asked to clear this old trench system that stretched across the top of this hill. About minus eight, maybe minus 10, um, everything's under night vision. It's about 2 a.m. in the morning. I remember standing at the edge of this trench system, and then the intelligence briefing came back, and you're like, because in the intelligence brief, they said, here in Helmand province, they know your, our TTPs, our procedures, the way we actually go about finding all these bombs. And so they've counteracted that by making bombs that have no metal in them. So here I am about to search this trench system with known bombs in it with a metal detector looking for bombs that have no metal in them. Yeah, that became, was one of the worst nights of my life. I was digging through and the surface of the dirt had like snap frozen. So you had my little gaff hook, like picture a little garden rakey thing you find in your mum's shed and had to break open the surface of the dirt because the surface of the dirt and that snap frozen maybe an inch. And so you had to actually bang through the actual top of the dirt and you're going through. I remember this big chunk of dirt just breaking free when I was going through it. And I was like, yeah, sweet, big chunk broke free. I was like, yeah, I get to capitalize. And I went with my gaff hook, my little hooky thing. I pulled all the dirt out of the way. And as I did that backward stroke, so I'm on my, laying on my stomach right now, laying on my guts, clearing this. And as I did that backward stroke, this package the size of a tissue box came flying out of the wall in front of me and landed right in front of my face. Instantly I knew what it was and what had just happened. I had just uh, ripped, with the, when I, that backward stroke, I wrapped it around the, the wire and I just ripped the battery pack of a, one of those hidden bombs out of its seating position and committed the biggest sin in dealing with these IEDs and disturbed it. I just froze. Nothing can prepare you for a moment like that. You knew you were alive in that moment, but you know that what could have, what could, how it could be different. But then I remember seeing my mind took a few moments to register, but then I saw this piece of wire running out of the battery pack and did this perfect loop and was running directly underneath me. I'm laying on the pressure plate switch and I've missed it. My mind sort of shut down. I still remember it. All you really know is that move and die. This is it. Your number's up. Yeah, yeah. Your time has been drawn. Um, I just, yeah, one minute you're alive, next moment if you move right now, move and die. This is it. Probably what felt like eternity, probably more like 30 seconds to a minute passed by and I finally came to a plan of attack and I was like, well, this pressure plate's directly underneath me. I'm going like, to sort of like prop myself out because the most likely spot they'll put something like that is like directly underneath in the, in the center of the trench. And so if I prop myself as wide as I can, then less sweet life will be oh, um, the most highly unlikely spot for me to detonate this thing. And so I managed to do some sort of funky push up off my elbows and just I managed to get to my knees. And I'm propped up real hard against the edge of this pit. And I remember turning around, see five commandos sitting in the trench directly behind me. That's how much trust they had in me and what I was doing, that they were actually in the pit with me while I was searching. I'd already found one earlier that night, but they were also completely oblivious to the fact of what has just transpired in front of me. And I still remember looking over my shoulder and like, it's like everything on the night vision, everything's like shades of green and black. And I remember my jaw, my jaw was just so tight. Just... I was like, guys, I'm 
laying on an IED, move away. Yeah, obviously they don't need to be told twice. They uh, jump ship pretty quick. They got the hell out of there. I can still see his face. His jaw just dropped. And they got out. Then I did my final maneuver and did some sweet commando roll out of the um, pit. And I was like, what? And that's the thing. You just shake it off. You're like, whoa, man, that was close. Well, that's all good. No dramas. Shit happens. (laughs) No dramas. It doesn't sound like it in the way you describe that particular instance. I know, I know, but to me, I just saw this as doing my job. I was like, I'll deal with this in the morning, and come morning, we've got an EOD tech, like an explosive technician up there to deal with it, and it turned out that the pressure plate was underneath my chest, so if I had taken like another bite forward, I would have detonated it, but the problem is, is that if I detonated, I probably would still, I'd probably still be here, because the main charge, the explosive part wasn't underneath me. It was underneath the five guys who were in the pit with me. It was designed to the lead person walking through there to set it off and take out everyone behind. In that moment, I failed myself. Take my own life, that was, that's easy to deal with. But the guys in that pit's lives were at my mercy of my responsibility from this hidden threat. And that night, although everyone got out alive, I had still failed. And that's how I interpreted what happened that night. That rattled me internally. You talk about that feeling that you'd failed. But why failed? Why is that the word that springs to mind when you recall that experience? That is the word that I've been uh, struck me down for many years. After that night, I became rather fearful of failing because to myself, I did that night and almost got everyone killed. But why do you feel you failed? I mean, you saved the lives of your mates. So why was failure the word that came to your mind at that time? I had an expectation of myself. It may have been idealistic set by that of my grandfather, but I had an expectation of myself. And in that moment, I had failed myself to uphold the job that I was set out there to achieve. What were you expecting of yourself then? That you would somehow single-handedly be able to be responsible for everyone's safety, regardless of the threat that you're encountering? I, <laughs> I know. And this, is, and this is where it's so, it's so bizarre. Um, that was how strong and expectation that I had of myself and what I should be able to do that in that moment, even though in recent times, I've heard people trying to describe that as an impossible mission. But yet I look at that go, no, impossibility is a choice. Whatever one finds impossible is not necessarily impossible for other. That is a choice. And I never would have taken on that job. I knew I was walking up there to clear a trench system with IEDs with a metal detector that I knew IEDs had no metal in them. I knew that and I would not have taken on the job if I didn't believe I could accomplish it. And I know that everyone got out safe and everyone's alive and all is sweet. But at the same time, mixing not only what happened in that moment with almost killing the five other guys, but like just the trauma of the actual moment itself, only looking back now in hindsight right now, and how that moment impacted and shaped my life ever since. You mentioned there the word trauma. So was that the moment for you? When you look back over your career, I mean, you've talked about so many extreme experiences that you were exposed to throughout your time as a special forces combat engineer. But of all of those different experiences, was this the one that was the turning point? With my first tour and the situations that I found myself in there with those like being blown up and all that sort of stuff with the IDs. And then SAS selection. 
and then been told I was not the man that I once be, that I once believed I was. And then one of my mates stood on an IED and it was never meant to be come out that day. He it, he was just a fill in and that that job and then obviously doing the bandaging him up with like blood and shrapnel wounds just lining his body and yeah, he just and then the gunfights and then the, the death and the blood and shaking down dead dudes and then taking other lives yourself. That trench system, that everything there sort of like pictured like a mirror and it's like someone threw a cricket ball at it or something like that and the mirror just like it fractured and shattered. That night there, that the whole mirror just came crashing down and it just wiped me out. At the time, an irreparable mess. The world just became dangerous. At a very young age, you're asked to defy everything that you once believed about this world. Um, we grow up in like a Western culture where we're taught to thou shall not do harm to others and all that sort of like good jazz of just like how to live in harmony and peace and that society function and work. And then here you are at a very young, young age asked to take the life of your fellow man, a man you will never meet, you personally have no beef with, but he is your political enemy. And within the military system, orders become the new truth. They're not something to be questioned. They are something to be done. And that's where the whole moral injury comes into the fact that I spent many years, I was seeing a psych and she asked, I was telling her all this and she's like, Nathan, it's okay. You're still a good person. I just broke down. That that comment just shattered me because I thought I was, I wasn't because I'd seen and done bad, and I didn't believe I was deserving of a second chance. It was a moment that the my reality and my expectation of myself sort of like peeled apart. The man, the idealistic man that I grew up trying to be, the perfect soldier, and the reality <laughs> just like peeled apart like a like a banana skin sort of thing. It's just like, yeah, just ripped apart. And from that moment, my life sort of took a spiral. And by the time I got home, I was still okay. Like I managed to finish off the rest of my tour and I was all sweet. I didn't know at the time. I didn't know that I was being affected by all this sort of stuff. But by the time I got home and within about three months, I broke it off with my girlfriend. I was uh, bought a high-powered sports car and I was just going as fast as I could. I got my skydiving license, just jumping out of planes, just like trying to get that, trying to find that spark again back in my life. Because that's what people don't understand, like going to war and all the gunfire, like as scary as it may be, but it's ecstasy, like the rush. When you are running from your for your life as some dude hell-bent on killing, you're firing like a machine gun or an AK-47 or something like that you're like you are alive like this is as close as you come to life and death this is paintball but with bullets like this it doesn't come any real when you're laying on top of an IED you're like holy this is it and then when you come back to the civilian world you're like you're trying to match those expectations and that feeling that you once had and nothing can do it you never find it again unless you go over there again so that my second tour I was 24 then I tore multiple ligaments in my hips during that tour, during a gunfight, which led to having bilateral hip surgery and took nearly 18 months of rehab, which not only, geez, ended my career, but also a way in which I once lived. And so, yeah, I was uh, discharged in 2014 due to physical injuries. At this time, I was in complete denial. I was 
brought up always putting on that brave face, being a man, like being the epitome, like stoicism, like being a stoic, like enduring pain and hardship without showing any feeling or pain, without showing any emotion. And so I was, and this mask I was so tuned to wearing. And so, yeah, I managed to hide it very well till I, yeah, got out, separated from all my mates, from everything, my support network, everyone who I knew. And then my life just went down the gurgler, sitting in the car some days and I'd just be screaming. These thoughts, these memories, everything you've been through, like because you, your mind is unable to process what it is because what you've seen, you can't make sense of what it is that you've seen and things that you've been through overseas. And so because it's not processed and you don't can't make sense of it, your mind constantly brings it forth until you manage to process and understand it and just keeps replaying, replay, replay, replay. And I'm just sitting there driving my car and I'm just like, get out of me, just screaming. Because I didn't, I couldn't make sense of what was going on. In 2013, I was awarded Soldier of the Year. I went from this highly respected man within my regiment, got awarded Soldier of the Year, the Special Operations Engineers Regiment, as the one man that every soldier would want to be sharing a foxhole with if shit hit the fan. Out of anyone, they chose me. And geez, like two and a half years later after my second tour, now I'm this, I'm like this walking disaster. Like, I, like yeah, like I, I'll look into the mirror and see the reflection of a man I still knew, but the man underneath was no longer me. I, like, I left the war and came home a stranger. Like my mind just like crippled by his past, uh, came shackled by the tortures of my own thoughts. And I lost the next five years, four years, five years, feeling a far lesser man. I recluse myself from the world. I'd never answer the phone. I couldn't, my mates couldn't get in contact with me. I hated myself. The very foundations of who I was just shattered. I didn't, I didn't know who I was anymore. It was like grabbing a kitchen plate and just, like just dropping it and just shatters. Like that was my life, that shattered plate. So four years, four years yeah. being alone, suffering. In the way you describe how did you find a way out i was very fortunate to have a brother who at the time we both began studying psychology because we both had a want to understand like i was still in a lot of denial at this sort of fact time when we both started studying but he loved psychology and he pretty much had a first-hand case study to actually when he was studying and it had me and then it was torture as he constantly made me relive a lot of my experiences over and over and over. And it got to the point some days where I would be just screaming at him and I'd like pack my swag, jump in the car and like disappear and like just vanish off the face of the earth. I was chasing the greener land. All I wanted to do was disappear by like a little grassy paddock out of the middle of nowhere and just vanish from society. You'd walk around the city and you can't like sitting in cafes. You'd want to sit with your back to the corner. I wouldn't even go to cafes going shopping and having so much choice like you just everything that you once knew and what you once took for granted becomes like such a difficult task to accomplish like going to see a doctor saying i need some tablets or to help me sleep or something like you feel ashamed of yourself i always believed that this was a phase and that life can be better like i knew i could never be the same person as i once was but jeez man life could surely be better than this right now Without knowing it, that very question itself was actually hope in disguise. Even as dark as the tunnel may be, isolating, lonely, scary, confusing, it is still a tunnel. It's not a cave. There's an exit. 
there's an A and a B, and I always believed if, if I just kept walking, then one day, one day, the, that glimmer of light might be there. And I walked, and I walked, years just rolling by. And it wears you down, burns you out. It's never going to happen. And then, yeah, in 2015, I was at a mate's wedding, surrounded by laughter and joy. Everyone, like, the day of all days, for everyone to be happy and all that sort of stuff. And I remember sitting there and unknowingly, I excused myself from the table and unknowingly to everyone, I left the venue, sitting atop a set of stairs. I remember pulling out my phone. I was tired, so burnt out, just exhausted. It's never-ending, relentless, just battle waging within my own mind. And I remember just put on this song. It was a Shine Your Light by Robbie Robinson from the latter 49 final scene. It was in my will to be played at my funeral. And I remember playing that song. Peace just washed over me. Sleep was all I desired and to sleep forever became the most merciful thing. I was done. My spark had gone out, devoured by darkness. But that became a turning point. My mate found me that night and I remember him asking me, Bolts, because everyone's got worried because I just disappeared. And I'm like, what's wrong, mate? When he asked me, I just, I just broke down. I was so confused. Nothing was making any sense. I'd gone from this like man who had stood tall at the tip of the spear, fighting on the front line of Australian Special Forces, to this wreck that could no longer even justify his own existence. But that moment, I thought I'd hit rock bottom. That moment, that was rock bottom. That right then and there, that was when I shattered the foundations. And from that moment was when I was ready to get help. I was already seeing a psych, I was already seeing a psychologist and a psychiatrist, but it wasn't happening, it wasn't resonating. I, I wasn't ready yet. And I remember when I went back there after that was when I was ready to sit there and become a student listen and learn. I was like the man that I'd become had brought me to this moment where I could no longer even justify who I was. And now that I'm sitting here, fresh start, blank canvas, I was ready to rebuild myself from the ground up, pulling apart a motor and rebuilding. I was like, pull the whole motor apart, check every piece and slowly piece this thing back together. And it took years and it was painful and torturous as you're just constantly battling yourself. It's like the, a critique of yourself of the highest of calibers. But I, was unremitting and I just kept pushing and pushing. When I needed support, she gave me a shoulder to lean on. My psychologist, she was great. I felt stupid for what I was saying. She reinforced that it wasn't as okay because I could rationalize my own irrationality. I knew my thoughts were so skewed and so twisted. I knew it was wrong, but within my own heart, I couldn't swallow it. I couldn't accept it. And yeah, only now was I ready. And, uh, yeah, and for me, she challenged a lot of my thoughts, which was like fear of failure. Everything I went through, I had a massive fear of failure. I stopped trying. I never wanted to find myself in the same position as I once did. And so I stopped trying. And if you stop participating and you stop, you stop taking risks, you stop participating in life. So I had to break through that. I was so ashamed of my own inability to cope. Like I always tried to be the, the strong man for everyone and everyone. I was the one that was crying out for help and just accepting that, that I was living under a false sense of expectation and ideals that unfortunately my father, when he passed on our stories of our grandfather, he only passed on the successes and the accomplishments that he achieved, never of the failings. I went through life throwing all the punches, throwing, 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 and then suddenly when life threw one back at me, I wasn't ready to take the hit. And after years of work, you did come out the other side of that tunnel 
and tell us about where that's led you, that experience, that survival, and the legacy of those experiences you had in Afghanistan. Oh, I still remember when the, that light on the other side of the tunnel just finally presented itself. You're like, oh my gosh, it's real, actually exists. And now, these days, I, for everything that I've been through, if I don't pass on the lessons that I learned and what I took away from it, because for so many years I searched and searched trying to find any answers, trying to, for someone to help me work out what's going on in my mind. And now I look at myself and I go, if I don't actually sit here and actually try to and use the lessons that I learned to help other people in the same position that I was once in, then everything that I've been through is in vain. What actually sparked everything back into action was in 2016. I, it doesn't happen overnight. In 2016, I ended up rebuilding my dad's old racing sidecar. And I started sidecar racing, which gave me a rush that was comparable enough that I could actually enjoy. And it was actually it sparked enough adrenaline in my system. And I do that with my brother. Finally awarded myself of a long-awaited holiday. Went to Europe on a Kentucky. I know, don't judge me, please. But that was great because I suddenly found myself in a bus and was surrounded by strangers Then obviously had been a recluse for so many years and isolated from the rest of the world was a huge step, putting yourself in such a vulnerable position in front of so many people. But these days, yeah, now I do public speaking. I speak in schools. I talk about my experiences, the mistakes I made, the lessons I learned in order to to pass on messages about resilience and overcoming adversity, breaking through traditional notions of masculinity, which is a pivotal thing within my family, trying to tear down those masks and actually walk free as a person who you are and accept yourself for who you are. And you're not a, a byproduct of, let's say, materialism or being the biggest or the strongest or being bravest. Then I, so I produced a documentary last year with my brother, which delves into um, why Anzac Day exists in this small country town in upstate New York, which looks into the story of um, the late Australian Army Captain Paul McKay, who after his tour to Afghanistan, a long consecutive battle with post-traumatic stress disorder, flew to the US, busted north to this little town known as Saranac Lake in upstate New York, stayed the night, bought a shovel and walked off into the frigid minus 15 degree wilderness to uh, never be seen again. However, although tragic, yes, this town not only well, not only rallied behind but came to commemorate the death of a stranger, one of our own in their backyard and have commemorated Anzac Day in his memory ever since. And so we went over there to find out what the hell does Anzac Day mean to you guys? And over there, it's all about mental health, post-traumatic stress and supporting ex-service personnel when they return home, pretty much when they need it most. And now I sit on the South Australian Premier's Council on suicide prevention, works under the state government as we try to reduce suicide on a state level through policy. And then also I work now with the South Australian Mental Health Commission, which is a group of individuals who come together from all walks of life, all different perspectives, try to help shape mental health to make sure that what is coming out of like a commission or the bigger system is actually relatable to the everyday person and the community. Nathan, you've shared so much with us today in today's podcast. Of all the things you've talked about, your journey, your incredible courage and your resilience and what you're now doing for your community today, what is it you'd like listeners to take away from what you've told them? Even when you're at your lowest, it's never over. All you've got to do is keep stepping one step in front of the other. 
you may not know where that step's going, but if you keep stepping, eventually one day, if you have the audacity and the courage, you can break free. You do not have to be defined by or become a victim of your own label. Yes, PTSD, depression, anxiety, like, yeah, they're, they are torturous. Like I've got post-traumatic stress disorder and major depression. For so many years, I let it define me and I allowed myself to be defined by the label, but only now do I realise that, no, it doesn't have to define. You can be whoever you want to be. Yes, you'll be burdened by the weight of what those conditions are, but it doesn't have to be you. Like that kitchen plate that I told you about that shattered, it's like this kitchen plate and it shatters. That is what trauma is. When that plate shatters on the ground, that is trauma. But only a few of us, most of us will just sweep it into a bin and leave it, push it to the side and let it be. But only a few of us will ever see that plate and go, no, I'm going to rebuild it. I'm going to piece that plate as long as it bloody well takes. I'm going to piece that plate back together. And one day I will resemble the same plate that I once was, but I'll be stronger in some ways, but weaker in others. So given that process you've been through, reconstructing that plate, who is Nathan Bolton now? I resemble a former self. But the one question I've always been asked is everything that you've been through in the life that you live, do you regret it? And I'm like, that is the question of all questions. Um, but I guess my answer would be for the mates that I've made, the stories that I have to tell, but more importantly, the man that I have become, I wouldn't change a thing. But be fucked if I'd ever do it all again. And that is the beauty of growing old. You only have to do it once. Live and learn. Follow your dreams, but never give up on yourself. And at the end of your life, die as a proud old man, having lived a life worth living and having left a legacy that your grandkids can be proud of you by. And always know that recovery is always possible. <laughs> that's, that's, that's me. <laughs> Nathan Bolton, thank you for your honesty, your integrity and your openness and for sharing your incredible story of courage and resilience and recovery with us today. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me here today. You've been listening to Life on the Line in collaboration with StoryRise. I'm Sharon Maskeldare. Thank you for listening. Learn more about this podcast and the team behind it at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Our email is podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. We're also on social media. Follow us on Twitter at LOTLpod. Like us on Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast and follow us on Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget. <laughs>